3: The Telegraph Telegraph. podcasts.
0: We walked up to this lake. It was a frozen surface, and I looked over. Maybe four, five hundred metres away, there's a beautiful Orthodox church, and I could hear the bells. And then i looked to my left and there were two guys putting a boat into the lake and i could hear them speaking that's absolutely amazing we're stood here and we can hear the russian people speaking just on the other side of the border over there i mean one of the things you're not allowed to do you're not allowed to communicate across the border it's one of the one of the things you get in trouble for so uh, so if I, I think if i were to shout now and say hello would
3: well, i get I, guess, in I get no i guess you can say hello do okay.
0: you wanna try? Yeah. <laughs> Just give it a try. Hello! No? I
3: think they are minding their own business.
0: Yeah. Very sensible. Yeah.
4: Little do they know it, but those birds who fly away when Ash shouts hello are actually travelling between two countries. We are in the far northeastern corner of Europe, think of it as like the postage stamp on a map of the continent, in a remote Estonian village that has been split in half by the Russian border. I'm Greg Dickinson and you're listening to Edgelands, a podcast about the places and the people who live on the borders of planet Earth. Now it's easy to forget that we do live on a rock that is essentially floating around in space, and it's us human beings who have decided to carve it up into different countries with borders running between them and along these geopolitical front lines are communities the kind of edge lands of civilization where the sense of division and tension the feeling of there being an otherness just over there dominates everyday life Now, as a travel writer and editor at The Telegraph, I do try to explore the world as much as I can, but admittedly, I spend quite a lot of my time doing all the boring things that journalists have to do in 2018, like sitting at a computer, sending out tweets, going to meetings and all the rest of it. So I really enjoy vicariously living out my travel dreams through our writers, like Ash Badwaj. In this first series of Edgelands, we've kitted Ash out with a microphone. He's travelling the entire length of the Russian border of Europe, the kind of new iron curtain that was drawn up after the fall of the Soviet Union. So he's going all the way from the far, far north of Norway down to Istanbul to discover what life is like on the edgelands of Europe. And in this very first episode, we are in Setomar in Estonia. Ash actually crosses into Russia in this episode, but just for 100 metres. And he enters a former KGB interrogation cell. And in the end, he meets a young Mancunian guy who packed in everything to live a more simple life here, in the woods.
0: So here in southeast Estonia, we're right up against the Russian border, and this region was hugely affected by the collapse of the Soviet Union. Because before then, you could move freely between Russia and Estonia, and the people that live in this area, are known as a seto, this is Mar. And they could move easily from one side of the Seto area to another. And the community was spread across what was then Russia and Estonia. And of course, when the Soviet Union collapsed and the Iron Curtain fell, a kind of new Iron Curtain was created here. Because all of a sudden, you couldn't cross from Estonia to Russia. And you've got these weird little artifacts that are left over. So this this road, which used to run from one region of Setomar to another, now you can't get through there unless you go through russia where to begin ash so when we first met and you
4: pulled out this enormous map do you remember <laughs> and we were looking at where you're going and you're telling me about your trips with Levison wood in the past being his yep. cameraman yep. a little part of me did think why the hell are you traveling down the russian border you could do anything like you know you're a travel writer an adventurer cameraman what was it about the russian border that
0: made you want to go there? It's a good question, Greg. There's, I guess there's a few things. So first of all, I think Russia's always had an exoticism for us, and it's almost seemed like a European cousin. It's been part of our history, but it's a place that we don't know much about, a distant cousin. And then for me, the first time Russia really started to have an impact on my life was when I went to Estonia with the British Army Reserve. And we went to Estonia as part of this reassurance and deterrence mission, and part of the deterrence is to potential Russian threats. Wow. And I was like, oh, I, I didn't really know about that. So I thought I'd learn something about it. And so this set me on a path to learning about Russian history and learning particularly about Russian and Soviet history in the Baltics, uh, Estonia, where I was, and then reading more into it about the Soviet Union in Norway, the Soviet Union in Finland. And I realized there was this line all along the modern Russian border of Soviet interactions with its neighbors. And some of these were fascinating, and some of the legacies were interesting. And we hear a lot about Russia in the press, uh, particularly what's been happening in the current affairs in the last year or so. And I thought, I'd like to go and see these places for myself, because in my experience, it's very easy to get an idea of a place or particularly to become fearful of a place from afar. So I just wanted to see what Russia was like and particularly what it was like to live next to Russia. Uh, what happens if we break down, Helen?
3: Uh, we'll get arrested, we'll get fined, and you never get to go home.
0: So we were with a lady called Helen, and she is a local to Setomar. She actually lives in Tartu, uh, and she married a Seto man. That's how she became part of the Seto community. Okay, right. And she's a guy down there. She was showing us around, and uh, she was the one driving us through Russia. So we're just about to cross the border now. There's the Russian border post. So we're now back in Russia. Yes. And sorry, you were saying?
3: Welcome to Russia. <laughs>
0: So we had to basically, we were going from one part of Setemar to another part of Setemar along this road, which for years was just a trade route, no problem for anybody. And then suddenly the border moves in 1991 and they had to work out how you can get from this part to this part, rather than taking like a 50 mile diversion to get around. it.
3: So it doesn't doesn't really, we, we cannot say that we're, I don't know... Russian border guards are bad, and Estonian ones are good. They are both doing their job, and if they need to be, if they need to uh, uh, write out a fine to someone, then they will do that. Both of them will do that. Uh, but the funny thing is that uh, actually Estonia and Russia have uh, decided that this uh, piece of land will be uh, changed for some other land, so it's gonna disappear. Okay. And uh, they had plans uh, for that uh, for many years, but they still haven't done that. So now we are entering Estonia again. So we're
0: leaving
4: Russia, there's the
0: border post.
4: We were you at all nervous when you like, I know obviously you were doing nothing wrong, but was there that
0: sense of. I mean, you don't want to be locked away in a Russian prison, do you? There's always this case whenever you approach a border that you just think, I hope I don't do anything wrong. Yeah. You, you know, it's sort of like when you go on stage and you, you sort of like. Have I got my shirt tucked in? Yeah, Will fall over? Will accidentally swear at the audience or something? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are my flies undone? <laughs> yeah. know, it's exactly the same when you cross a border. You're like, uh, what if I somehow say something that means that I get arrested? Yeah, like offend his mother yeah. with, that, with a hand
4: gesture <laughs> by yes. mistake or something. Yeah. So let's zoom right in on one of these communities
0: right on the border. So in this episode we're talking about Setomar, C- is that how you pronounce it? Well so I Setomar, I've heard it pronounced a couple of different ways. Sometimes they say Seta, Seto, but I've gone with Setomar. That's the one that seems to work for most people. And the Seto are a sort of an ethnic subgroup that live in South East Estonia. They speak a different language. Mm-hmm. I wasn't quite sure if it was a language or just a strong dialect. And They have unique cultural traditions, and their land where they lived in, or still live in, uh, is spread across southeastern Estonia and what's now Russia. So during the Soviet Union, of course, that wasn't a problem. You could travel from Soviet Russia to Soviet Estonia very easily if you had the right papers. So people lived on both sides of the border from this old community, and they have unique aspects for both cultures. So they speak a Finno Ugric language, which puts them in Estonia. They have some traditions that are pagan. And yet So when you say that what kind of traditions are they? A real awareness of the land and of the seasons. They even have a god, a fertility god called Peko. According
3: to the legend the king of Setos is Peko, but Peko is uh, sleeping I'm not sure, we don't know if he's sleeping eternally or he just, uh, for now, he's sleeping in the sand caves of the Pechari Monastery, so he cannot be here. So every year, during uh, Seto Kingdom Day, uh, Chief Herald is uh, chosen to represent the king, so that he or she will give the messages from the king, the messages appear to him or her in the dreams.
5: So he's
3: kind of like a vice president.
4: The history and belief system of the Seto people dates back hundreds and hundreds of years. But just a few decades ago, the community here, and indeed across Europe, faced an occupation that would tear lives apart. So is is the echo okay here? Absolutely fine.
2: So in 1940, Estonia is occupied by our uh, eastern neighbor, the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union, once it comes to Estonia, it nationalises all all sorts of buildings, establishments, uh, railways, banks, whatever. And it also nationalises this building, so takes it for itself, evicts all the former residents, uh, deports the owner to to the faraway Siberian labour camp as well, just in case, and hands it over to the Soviet state security police, better known as KGB.
4: So tell me about this KGB is it a KGB museum or KGB m-
0: prison museum that you went to? So it's actually a museum in the former KGB cells in the city of Tartu. And Tartu being close by? Tartu is, I guess it's Estonia's second city. All oh, right, And it's the city that's closest to Setemar. From Obinitsa, it's about maybe an hour, 45 minutes an hour to drive there. And it's a gorgeous city. It's a university city. It's on a lovely river. And you've got these layers of some German buildings in there or German-era buildings, some Russian-era buildings. And it's got a lovely feel about it, this town. But right in the middle of the town, there is a building. And I think it was originally apartments. So Estonia became part of the Soviet Union. And... Immediately, the NKVD, which is the predecessor of the KGB, moved in and started to enforce Soviet ideology. And they did this by rounding up people who had been part of the former Estonian government policemen, people who'd been in the army, intellectuals, anybody who might have owned land, property. And some of them were executed, particularly if they'd been in government or the military or the police. And the rest were deported to Siberia. So I think. Estonia lost something like 2% of its population over the course of several deportations. There were were, were a few. It wasn't all in 1939. But the KGB house was where they would interrogate people. They'd bring them in, interrogate them, pretty much until they confessed to crimes.
2: So from here, they uh, planned and executed all their operations, interrogations. uh, In essence, they were a police department. They carried out all sorts of investigations, interrogations, and they tried to uh, get convictions and compromising info out of those political prisoners. Which way should we go? We Uh, go this way. Perhaps over here. Yeah. So uh, now we are in a former prison cell. And uh, before I go on, uh, one of the reasons why we think KGB chose this building, this particular building. Uh, was because uh, before the war, it was a residential building, right? And down here in the basement were cellar boxes. Uh, Regular cellar boxes where people kept their potatoes, firewood, bicycle bikes, whatever people keep in their basement, right? So it was very easy for the officers... (laughs) It It was very easy for the KGB officers to come and put metal doors on these cellar boxes and then you had your prison basically ready for you. Uh, not a lot of work was required. So yeah, there's of course more light nowadays than there was back in the gauge times. But hopefully you, you get a basic idea.
4: So you're in. You actually went into the isolation room. Yeah. So what was it like? How big was it? You couldn't lie down. I'd say it was probably two foot by four foot. Couldn't lie down. Yeah. So you. So they would be in this room for
0: what days on end weeks on end and the other thing that weeks on end and the other thing they would do is sometimes they put several people in this no longer making it an isolation room oh but just a horrible place to stand God and you know you be in there for 72 hours and you know you will do anything to get out of there by the time they finished leaving you in there if I was in there I'd start immediately feeling claustrophobic and want to get out yes immediately you immediately think this was designed for this purpose and you immediately want to just get away from it and it's when you visit places like that that you start to think of just how horrific that occupation must have been because it's very easy to view these things as a visitor with some sort of fetish of oh, soviet uniform the kgb they're quite scary Mm. look at all these awesome uniforms and look at all this architecture they've left behind and these military infrastructure these crumbling soviet buildings the stories of the deportations, that people would be deported for nearly nothing, and the notion that you could just come home one day from school and your family would be gone. You'd have no idea where they were, and they would just have disappeared.
2: So the inter- interrogation period lasted from four to six months.
0: And what were they trying to do in that interrogation period?
2: Uh, get, ar- get the confession. That was the most important part. Uh, Soviet uh, legal system back then worked that uh, worked like this, that you didn't need... Uh, evidence, and you didn't need eyewitnesses. Uh, in order to uh, convict someone, you just needed their confession. So it was the, the the working methods of the Soviet security police where you had to get a confession out of the prisoner or other compromising info, whatever helps the, the on, ongoing investigation.
4: Who's this guy who we're hearing from here, the one who's showing you around the
0: KGB prism? So there were two guys. One was the curator of the museum down there. So he has basically gathered stories and artefacts from the time of the KGB being in Estonia and has created this museum with those artefacts. And the other one's a guy called Ants, and Ants was a musician who had two run-ins with the KGB in the 80s when he wanted to travel to Finland to go and do musical performances. So on the one hand, you had the curator who gave us a very informative explanation of what the KGB was doing, in particular its history. And the other guy was able to give me a very vivid experience of how people felt about the KGB in the 1980s. And it certainly changed over the period of the occupation of Estonia. To all you romantics out there, it might
4: be best to look away now, or whatever the podcast equivalent is, take your headphones out. This guy's tale is just heartbreaking. Did it feel tense
0: for you yes. in, in the studio? you did?
5: Yes, yes, yes. I, I, it was my first and last contact with, with KGB directly. And... Um, the sad thing, we went to Finland, we had a, in Kotka, we had a festival, very nice, we, very nice concerts, it, 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 it went very well, and there was a one Finnish girl band, we have six lads, and, and they had a four girls band. I, 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 because I'm from Tallinn, I, I spoke fluent, not fluent, but I, quite good Finnish, so it wasn't a problem. So they won the festival, and we won the band side of the festival part. And we went to the sea together on the, on the yacht. And I was just... I, felt, I've, I've, I fell in love. <laughs> so hopelessly, it was really nice Maria uh, girl. And right when I came back to Estonia, I write, wrote a card to, to her. Because it was my, I don't know, second, third time in my life I was just like so, so, so in love. But he never, uh, she never wrote me back. And uh, later, I don't know, it was 15 years later or it was beginning of 90s, I think, we met in Finland. He never got this this. So the KGB controlled the post, so they, just for any case, they took this, this contact out. So my, at that time, my biggest love, I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't understand why she wouldn't write me back.
4: I feel like I'm slowly building up a picture in my mind of how the Soviet occupation and the KGB and this new Iron Curtain have impacted on the Seto community in recent years. But it leaves me wanting to know, what is life actually like there? Like what would it be like to move there?
0: So I'm chatting to Mahmoud. Mahmoud is Egyptian, Irish and grew up in Manchester, but now lives in Setomar.
1: So what made you move to Setomar? I was travelling here about two years ago, summer of 2016. Met a guy around here who was living a pretty much local life, had a farmhouse, had some goats, made cajeta, caramel, uh, which is a Mexican recipe, of course. (laughs) And uh, the more I travelled away from this place, I just realised there was something special about it. So I came back in winter last year, spent the winter here in a house in the forest with no running water. And now that spring's here, I'm loving it even more. I've got to say, when I was listening through
4: the audio that you were sending in while you were on the road... I think Mahmoud was the most surprising of everything I heard. The last person I thought I would hear from is some Mancunian guy who's decided to up sticks and move to Setomar. What kind of what kind of a
0: guy was he? What was he like? Well, Egyptian Irish Mancunian.
4: Egyptian Sorry. Irish Mancunian. Al- Sorry,
0: already something of a nomad. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, by heritage. <laughs> yeah, and he was just a lovely bloke. He was about six four. Just had a nice demeanour, conversational sort of enjoying being in Obinitsa. So Obinitsa is already like this remote town. You know, it like I said, it takes about an hour to get to the nearest city and you just sort of live in Obinitsa. That's what you do. Not only has he chosen to live down in a remote corner of southeast Estonia, but he's chosen to go and live in the woods where he has to chop his own woods, where he has to deal with the snow for months on end. And you'd expect somebody who lives that kind of life to sort of be maybe quite quiet, maybe doesn't speak too much. And certainly that is a stereotype of Estonian men. But as you can see from his conversation, he's like, you know, quite a conversational chap, as you'd expect from an Egyptian-Irish bank union. Yeah, (laughs) I think he just loved the sense of peace down there. How do you find being in and around the Seto culture? Because that's very significant in this area. Have you found it sort of integrating with that?
1: Yeah, it's strange. It's uh, very distinct and... Speaking to other Estonians from places like Tartu, from Tallinn, you get this impression of a not so much close but quite a private community. It's very small, even by Estonian standards. But the people I've met here. Every single one of them is willing to explain what's going on. They love explaining their culture, their history, their traditions. And uh, it's quite strange. It's some of the easiest places I've been to talk to.
2: Do you
0: ever miss being in the big city? Do you ever miss being in Manchester? Or do you find the... What is it you find here that you can't find back there?
1: Well, there's one thing back there I miss. That's a kebab. (laughs) But, you know, that's a small price to pay, really. Just the nature around here, I'm sure you've seen, is spectacular. And the fact that people here still will just walk out into the forest, they'll find things like mushrooms and berries. People know the land they live on. They know the land that's around them, even if they spend more time in towns and cities than they do in the countryside. And obviously that's quite alien for someone growing up in a city that's got a bigger population than this whole country. So, yeah, I'll trade don and kebabs the nature here any day. (laughs) So what do you do?
0: Do you go out and sort of find your own food and, you know, go and get your own firewood and those sorts of things?
1: To an extent, I guess, yeah. I mean, so for water in the winter, I melted my own snow. Firewood, I had a supply. I didn't have time to prepare it. I wasn't here in the summer. But I am hoping this summer I can go out, get some, timber myself off a friend's land, chop it myself and It's nice to think that far ahead, to do small little projects, but that will sort you out months down the line. And I think that's something that's reflected in the set of culture here. People are very, they think in the long term. As for food, well, I teach two days a week, so a lot of potatoes. But I'm half Irish, so I'm fine with that. So what do you do the other five days a week? Wander around the forest. Sounds slightly weird, but I love it.
0: So the the procession has moved off led out the front by a guy holding a lantern and two people holding banners a guy holding an icon of Jesus and then the priest the priest opened the doors to the inner sanctum and the sound is singing everybody is processed out and is starting to walk anti-clockwise around the church holding candles and it's the middle of the night it's It's actually midnight. Everyone's in a procession walking around the church holding candles. I really feel quite sad to be leaving Setamar. It's not just a beautiful place and amazing landscapes, but learning about the culture and the people from here has been wonderful, they've been so warm, so welcoming so generous and to see about a culture that was nearly that nearly disappeared under the Soviet period then had to suffer from the end of the Soviet Union splitting its land in half and seems to really be thriving today, it's a really wonderful story and I'm very glad that I came here
4: Thank you so much to Ash Bardwaj, reporting from his 5,000-mile adventure from Arctic Norway down to Romania. So in future episodes, we will be continuing on Ash's journey, taking you into Chernobyl, to Transnistria, the country that doesn't exist, and Kaliningrad, the Russian island in the middle of Europe. And to make sure you don't miss a single episode, you can subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your shows. And if you're really enjoying Edgelands, do give us a rating and please write us a review because we would love to hear from you. We will be releasing a new episode every week, but if you want to hear episode 2 ahead of schedule, you can go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash Edgelands and you can give it a listen right now. Just click on each episode and you will also find additional content including videos, photos and written features from Ash. Ash. And if you're the kind of person who listens to a podcast and gets a thirst to go out and explore this part of the world for yourself, we've got a brilliant Telegraph tour of the Baltic States. All of the links are up there on the episode page at telegraph.co.uk forward slash Edgelands. I've been Greg Dickinson. Thank you so much for listening. We hope to see you very soon.